Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today's show is all about a topic that's been all over the news of late. This is an attack that should shock the conscience of people of all faiths around the world. As gunfire rings out in Benghazi, we come to you this morning with grim news. The U.S. ambassador to Libya and three other Americans have been killed when protesters stormed the U.S. consulate in Benghazi. That, of course, was Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, followed by international news reports of the attack on the U.S. embassy in Benghazi, Libya an attack that took the lives of Chris Stevens, the U.S. ambassador to Libya, and three other Americans on September 11, 2012. The attack was followed by protests at and evacuations of embassies across the Middle East, including the U.S. embassy in Tunis, Tunisia. 14-year Foreign Service Officer Ingrid Larson, along with her young son and daughter, was there. When an embassy evacuates, we don't get that much notice. And so I left with my children very quickly and we went back to the United States so that I could settle the children again since we're not sure how long the evacuation will last. Now that we're here, we have to find our lives again, find childcare, figure out how to get to work. I need to get a car because my car was burned at the embassy. So in light of these recent events and given the number of Washingtonians who work in diplomacy or follow foreign affairs, we wanted to bring things closer to home this week. That's why over the next hour, we're focusing on the topic of diplomacy. We're bringing you an assortment of stories, some more serious, like the challenges of exercising political diplomacy as the election season heats up, and some more lighthearted, like how our founding fathers began an intriguing tradition of plant diplomacy. But to begin today's show... We'll take a closer look at people like Ingrid Larson, the roughly 13,000 Americans working at the 260-plus U.S. diplomatic missions around the world. Hello, this is Susan Johnson. Since 1980... Yes, just a moment. Susan Johnson has served at a number of those missions, like Havana, Cuba. Mauritius. Moscow. Romania. Iraq. And Bosnia. I probably left something out somewhere along the way, but (laughs) now you have it all down. These days, Johnson is president of the American Foreign Service Association, or AFSA, a union representing workers in five agencies. State Department, AID, Foreign Commercial Service, Foreign Agricultural Service, and International Broadcasting Bureau. Johnson pretty much grew up in the Foreign Service, since her dad was a member. And my mother would have been, except she married my father, and in those days, in the 40s, married women were not allowed to serve in the Foreign Service. Since then, that rule obviously has changed, as have a lot of other things. Take, for instance, the number of posts around the world. That's gone up, and with it, the number of hardship posts. So hardship posts, really, it's just all the things you do not get that we would consider normal. Like, say, a lack of schools? A difficult climate and health situation. Prevalence of organized crime? Um, And perhaps a lot of different dangers, be they, you know, snakes, insects, who knows what. Employees assigned to these posts receive a hardship differential of 10 to 35 percent of their salary. The greater the hardship, the higher the percentage. I got some statistics from an AFSA surveys over the last eight years. So we see that 89 percent of the Foreign Service now say they have served in hardship posts of 15 percent or above. And when it comes to what the Foreign Service refers to as danger posts? 33 percent say they've served in unaccompanied posts. 
An unaccompanied post means they're so dangerous that you can't take your family. Then, as we've recently seen in Lebanon, Tunisia, and Sudan, there's the number of foreign service workers who have experienced an emergency evacuation. To date, about 22 percent. Johnson has this big spreadsheet of all authorized evacuations since June 1988. And the reasons for these ordered departures are numerous. Earthquake, civil unrest, terrorism, war, cyclones. Um, seeing some crime there. Crime, yeah. See, this is all organized crime. So that's the environment in which diplomacy needs to operate. And we accept that. And someone who accepted that environment for more than five years is this guy. Craig Lebemoff, attorney for the U.S. government. Before Lebemoff became associate counsel at the Department of Homeland Security, he was a foreign service officer. I joined a few months after 9-11 because I think I was caught up in the, you know, the idea that we should all do something, do whatever we can if you could. I recently met up with Lebemoff at a bustling coffee shop. Where he told me about a day he'll remember forever, July 28, 2004. It was a sweltering summer afternoon in Uzbekistan. The temperature is in Fahrenheit, usually between 110 and 120. And Lebemov was at the U.S. Embassy there, where he and his wife were serving as diplomats. Lebemov as... The general services officer in charge of most of the embassy's blue-collar employees. And his wife as... The community liaison officer. And my wife and the co-community liaison officer... Uh, We're outside waiting for the cake to come for the uh, retirement party. Of an embassy colleague. Lebemov says he was doing paperwork in his office when suddenly, right around 3.15... It was a big boom. A big enough boom to throw staffers in the embassy's front room against the wall. Lebemov's office was farther back in the building, across a courtyard, so by the time he felt the impact... The first thing that went through my head was, did a car blow up in the parking lot? On second thought, I thought maybe it was a grenade that someone had thrown over into the courtyard. Turns out he was wrong on both counts. Two local police officers had tackled a bomber in front of the embassy, and as they struggled, the bomb went off. Unfortunately, it killed the policemen, uh, so they gave up their lives to protect the U.S. Embassy. The bomber died, too. Some embassy workers were injured, but the scariest part, Lebemov says, is the lack of control. Not just um, is it a more concentrated attack and are they going to breach the perimeter and come and kill me, but more, uh, you know, where's my wife, where's my employees that I'm responsible for, and um, are my kids all right? And, says Susan Johnson of the American Foreign Service Association, those thoughts have crossed the mind of many a Foreign Service officer. Because the way Johnson sees it, international diplomacy inherently involves two things, risk and danger. So what are we looking at here? So here we're looking at some names that I um, drew just from AFSA's plaque. AFSA maintains a memorial plaque for all members of the Foreign Service or the embassy community who are killed in the line of duty. Since the year 2000, those names number more than 20. That's including last month's attack in Libya. As for how these individuals died, there's a plane crash, a helicopter crash, an earthquake, a heart attack, even a case of cerebral malaria. But one cause of death trumps them all. If you add up all the terrorist attack, we have 16 out of 22, so a majority of them. And yet, says Susan Johnson, for all the risk and danger that accompany the diplomatic life, there are plenty of rewards, too. It's not a career where you're going to get rich, but you may have a very rich 
life experience. And most people retire really proud to have served in the Foreign Service and to have represented their country and lived history, because that's a lot of times what you're doing. Other people are reading about it, but you're part of it, living it. To learn more about the Foreign Service and to read what it takes to become an officer, visit our website, metroconnection.org. We turn now from American embassies overseas to foreign embassies here in our fair city. You can find more than 180 embassies packed into Washington's 68 square miles. And these buildings are more than just brick and mortar. They're symbols of public diplomacy as they represent a foreign nation to the American public. Our brand new Metro Connection reporter, Jacob Fenston, takes us to several of the city's embassies, starting with one that was recently repurchased, more than 100 years after being lost as imperial plunder. When you think embassies, you probably don't think Logan Circle, and when you get to Logan Circle, you might not even notice the house on the corner of 13th Street, hidden behind huge magnolia trees. The house is such a beautiful piece of architecture. We didn't wish to see this house broken up like all the grand houses around here. Loretta Jenkins and her husband bought this old brick Victorian back in 1977. A few years later, as they headed out one Sunday afternoon, they happened to notice there was a Korean man standing on the corner across the street. And he was still standing there when we came back a couple hours later from the event that we had gone to. Their home, it turns out, once housed Korea's first diplomatic mission to the United States back in the 1890s. And the man standing across the street, he said he was the grandson of Korea's first ambassador here. My husband invited him in, and I made tea. And he walked around the house with such reverence that it struck a note with us. Over the years, they got several offers from Korean businessmen to buy the house, but they worried the historic building wouldn't be preserved. Finally, in August, the Jenkinses and the Korean government hammered out a deal. Um, Yeah, so basically this building that we just recently repurchased holds great historic significance. Andrea Choi is with the Korean Embassy's Cultural Center. Korea first bought the building in 1891 for $25,000. Which back then was a huge sum of money. But then they lost the building when Imperial Japan occupied Korea in 1905. So for many Koreans, the building isn't just an old house. It really does show um, our ancestors' efforts to ensure that Korea was free from imperial powers. Today's newer embassies also have a lot to say. Take, for example, the Finnish embassy, a copper and glass box, ultra-modern architecture. Architecture is uh, good, actually, said. The architecture is like frozen music. Anneli Hallonen is the embassy's cultural counselor. Music expresses the soul of the nation, and so does architecture. Every design element here reflects Finnish culture, says Hallonen. There's even a sauna, a necessity in any Finnish building. Yes, our parliament also has, and we call this uh, sauna diplomacy, because in sauna we are all equal. We are naked or wrapped in uh, the towels. It's not just the sauna or an embassy's architecture that says something. It's also the property's upkeep or lack thereof, even the location. Now, uh, this is the only embassy 
on Pennsylvania Avenue in D.C. between the White House and the Capitol building. Eric Lewis is leading a helmeted gaggle of tourists on segways around the National Mall. Right here, in the midst of all these symbols of America, stands a six-story building covered with Canadian flags. Shannon Marie Sony with the Canadian Embassy says the location here reflects the closeness of our two countries. The Canada-U.S. bilateral relationship is so complex that we need to be speaking on a daily basis to the members of Congress. Our location, if I can use a hockey metaphor, at center ice between our two goalposts is really important to us. Embassies in Washington weren't always these big architectural showcases. Architecture historian Jane Leffler says the first embassies, like the old Korean one on Logan Circle, began life as private mansions built around the turn of the 20th century. A lot of people built fabulous houses in Washington, millionaire tycoons who wanted to get closer to the center of power. But when the Great Depression hit, the tycoons couldn't afford to keep their second homes in Washington. Miraculously, there were foreign governments looking to buy property in D.C. and establish themselves here at that very time. So they bought a lot of those houses um, and saved them from what would have been destruction. Now many of these homes are returning to private hands. Realtor Bobby Brewster is trying to sell this former embassy in Calorama. Uh, The embassy of Portugal. This is a beautiful Georgian building with all the best motifs of the Georgian style. It's a classic. Brewster sold six embassies before, and this will be her seventh. Most were bought by private individuals. And now this one could be yours. In fact, the price was just reduced to $2.5 million. I'm Jacob Fenston. To see photos of some of the embassies Jacob visited, check out our website, metroconnection.org. Time for a quick break, but when we get back, the woman once considered the least diplomatic leader of the D.C. public schools. We'll catch up with former DCPS Chancellor Michelle Rhee. I think one of the mistakes that we made was we were doing the work. It was sort of obvious to us why closing schools or doing layoffs by quality instead of seniority was important. It seems so obvious to us. And yet we didn't do a good job of connecting the dots for people. That and more in a minute on Metro Connection here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU News coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson, in memory of Marjorie Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. I'm Rebecca Shear, and welcome back to Metro Connection. Today's show is all about diplomacy. And unlike the people we met before the break, the individuals we'll hear from next don't work in an embassy or for the foreign service. No, these folks are engaging in diplomacy of a more everyday sort, the type you might employ with friends, colleagues, or family members of opposing political stripes. Jonathan Wilson has the story. Richard Crespin had heard his potential business partner, Joy Wind Ronan, was pretty darn liberal. And so when they met for the first time, he tried to tone down his own admittedly conservative look. You know, it's funny, I actually dress slightly differently uh, you know, to not you know, put it off right away. And 
uh, I sort of st- I did steer clear and try to find issues where I thought we might have some common ground before jumping in to you know, actually debate her in, in any way. While she may have appreciated his sensitivity, Joy Wind, she says her name came from hippie parents, doesn't remember thinking Richard had toned down anything about his clothing. I was immediately shocked. Um, I thought, you know, here's someone I want to partner with, and he is as preppy and Republican as they get. Are we going to be able to find common ground? The perfectly named liberal Joy Wind and Richard, the conservative, found enough common ground. They've been business partners for years, after all, promoting corporate environmental responsibility. And even as they discovered more political differences, the two say their relationship has deepened as they've bonded over other things, such as both having young children. Ronan says one key to dealing with each other is laughter. We'll cast each other as, you know, the diabolical Republican and the, you know, extreme liberal. So when I have a question about conservatives, I call Richard. And when he has a a question about the liberals, he calls me. And so we, we really find humor in our relationship and we remember not to take each other too seriously. For Sue Gaynor and Scott Murdoch, learning to deal with their political differences wasn't quite so easy. Part of the issue is, well, they're married. Their differing views also came as a bit of a surprise, to one of them at least. Luckily, they can laugh about it, but it took a while. So I'd say it was probably the, the, the Clinton administration that really you know, brought it to a head. And uh, I knew how avid she was, and I went, oh, it won't be a good conversation if I tell her. <laughs> I thought we were in lockstep until some months after the election, he informed me he had not voted for Clinton, and I had assumed all the while because we agreed on certain things that I was very active about, and he had shared my activism that we had voted the same and we had not. You know, the elections happened and, and Clinton won, and, but then, you know, we were discussing amongst friends of, of who voted for who, and, you know, I felt, I should be honest, that we just didn't talk about it, and I said, you know, I didn't vote for Clinton, <laughs> and uh, and she was... Pretty irritated. (laughs) Gaynor says she stayed mad for a few months, but eventually got over it. Now she says she's learned not to assume that her husband is passionate about something just because she is. And she says they've both learned when a political argument has become more trouble than it's worth. But Gaynor hesitates to draw any comparisons between her marital relationship and what lawmakers on Capitol Hill have to endure. There is very little in the interaction day to day that politicians can learn from a couple like us, because the stakes are different for them. And for us, the stakes are harmony in the household and harmony among our friends. In fact, for his birthday, which was last week, we had a dinner with three other couples, one of them very far to the right, and one of them we refer to as the neighborhood hippies. And um, it was really enjoyable because we just avoided political conversation as a general rule. That's not a luxury elected officials have. Bob Gibson, director of the Sorensen Institute for Political Leadership at the University of Virginia, says political civility is at a generational low. It used to be that uh, congressmen and delegates and senators could go out uh, after work and talk to each other and have dinner and drinks and understand each other better. Gibson says that's changed in part because we're in an era of permanent campaigning and elected officials don't feel they have time to socialize with their opponents. But Gibson says political civility can make a comeback, and he believes it can be a grassroots effort. There doesn't have to be a magic moment at which the country turns around. It can be an individual one-on-one thing in which people just take the time to listen. Mostly it's listening and understanding the other side, and that we have plenty in common with people we don't agree with. We just have to find it. To recap, elected officials listen a little more and laugh a little more, too. 
Alright, so maybe it can't be that simple, can it? I'm Jonathan Wilson. This story came to us via WAMU's Public Insight Network, or PIN. It's a way for people to share their experiences with us and a way for us to reach out for input on stories we're working on. You can find more information about the Public Insight Network by visiting metroconnection.org slash PIN. Our next story is about a well-known D.C. figure who quickly earned a reputation for being, how shall we say, not very diplomatic as she ran D.C. public schools. They are getting a crappy education. I mean, you could try to sugarcoat it all you want, you know, a subpar, whatever. But what it is, in, in terms that everyone can understand, they are getting a crappy education. We're talking, of course, about Michelle Rhee who made those comments in an interview with ABC News a few years back. Rhee left her job as school's chancellor last year to head up Students First, an organization advocating for nationwide education reform. WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza recently caught up with Rhee, who gave her thoughts on DCPS Now and what she would do differently if she were running the schools today. Apart from vouchers, there seems to be a rough consensus on President Barack Obama's and former Governor Mitt Romney's positions on education. How do you see education reform, whether the pace or the issues as being different? In terms of President Obama, he has changed the game in a lot of ways. In terms of his education reform stances, I think that Race to the Top was a absolutely brilliant move. It, it sparked more legislative changes than I think the country has ever seen before. I think that his support of the growth of charter schools and teacher quality efforts have really, really been very strong. From what I've seen of Governor Romney's stances on these issues, I think he too wants to see a lot of changes happening within teacher quality. So similar to President Obama, there are more choices. Obviously, his platform includes vouchers, whereas the president's does not. I think the the biggest thing that I worry about with a potential Romney administration is around accountability, because just as the Democrats have to worry about kowtowing to the special interests within their party, which is the teachers' unions. The Republicans also have a special interest within their party, the Tea Party, uh, which is very aggressive. And I think the Tea Party wants to move to less federal involvement uh, in education, which I actually do not think is the right stance to take. Have you seen from the time you started with education reform that unions, whether locally or nationally, are more willing to agree on certain issues? Well, I think that they've had to had to come along to a certain extent. And if I use you know our experience here in D.C. as an example, uh, though it was a very, very tough negotiation and it lasted a very long time, we ended up with a, a groundbreaking contract uh, that to this day really sets a precedent nationwide. And so they did agree to that contract. I think some, sometimes on the disappointing side of things, though, they will try to keep the, the reforms that they support, keep them isolated. So, you know, it, it's not like after D.C. that then they went around the country and said, let's, let's have more contracts like D.C. When we talk about teachers' pay being linked to students' test scores, in D.C. you negotiated a contract that counted for 50%. And recently, the current chancellor announced that now it would be 35%, and the union is pushing to go as low as 20%. Do you see that as a rollback? 
No, because from what I understand, student achievement gains are still going to count for 50%. It's just that the DC CAS specifically will only count for 35%. The other 15% will be based on other kinds of assessments. And certainly, you know, as long as those tests are valid and reliable tests, then overall you're still looking at the 50%. Is there anything you would have changed about when you were chancellor? You know, we made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I also think that we've learned from our mistakes. And so now when I talk to school superintendents across the country, one of the things that I say is that, you know, you have to be very cognizant about how you're communicating. One of the mistakes that we made was we were doing the work. It was sort of obvious to us why closing schools or doing layoffs by quality instead of seniority was important. And yet we didn't do a good job of connecting the dots for people Do you think the pace of reform has continued? Well, I I think that the reforms have have definitely continued. Kaya Henderson worked with me for three and a half years, and I have a tremendous amount of faith in her and her team. I do think there's a difference, though. Mayor Fenty and I spoke every day. I think when you have that dynamic, it creates a different sense of urgency in the city overall. You are introduced in every article I read as the hard-charging, controversial former chancellor of D.C. Do you ever get tired of being introduced that way? I don't get tired of it, but I will say that I remain a little baffled by it because the reforms that we put in place here in D.C. and the reforms that we are advocating now through Students First Across the Country are common-sense reforms. So how they have been sort of framed in the public as controversial and hard-charging, it still um, bewilders me a bit. But if it helps people to have conversations that are much needed and that maybe in some cities have been avoided for a long time, then I'm okay with that. When Oprah introduced you as a warrior woman on her show last year, you said you wanted to raise a billion dollars for education. How much have you raised? So I said two things. I said we were going to have a million members by the end of the first year and raise a billion dollars over a five-year time period. We actually met our first goal. We're at 1.83 million members, which is exciting. And we're making a lot of progress towards the billion dollars as well. What's the dollar amount? (laughs) I'll just say we're making very good progress. That was former DCPS Chancellor Michelle Ree speaking with WAMU's Kavitha Cardoza. And if you'd like to chime in on the state of the D.C. public schools, diplomatically or otherwise, you can reach us at metro at wamu.org or find us on Twitter. Our handle is at wamu-metro. our weekly trip around the region. On today's Door to Door, we visit Lorton, Virginia, and Woodland Normanstone in northwest D.C. Hi, I'm Larry Arbach. I'm president of the Woodland Normanstone Neighborhood Association. Our neighborhood is uh, bounded by Rock Creek Park, Massachusetts Avenue, 34th Street, Garfield, Cleveland, Calvert, and 28th Street, essentially contiguous to Woodley Park. The neighborhood has approximately 160 
homes. There are no commercial establishments. About two dozen of the homes are residences for embassies. The embassies are a major part of the neighborhood. They participate in neighborhood activities and generally the embassies have been terrific neighbors. Well, the main reason you'd know you're here is that the grid plan stops. You're not on grid streets anymore. You're on streets that follow the contours of the land better and protect the land better. It, it has a different kind of feel to it. If you go to the top of the Washington Cathedral and look down to your southeast, you'll see a blanket of trees. That's the Woodland Normanstone neighborhood. My name is Irma Clifton. I'm 70 years of age, and I'm a lifelong resident of Lorton, Virginia. Lorton probably covers an area from the Potomac River on the east to the Occoquan River on the south, Fairfax Station on the west, and Fort Belvoir on the north. It has a population of about 20,000 in that area, and it's a very diverse population. I love the easy access to Washington, but also we have a tremendous amount of open space here. I have seen many changes in Lorton. Most of all was the building of 95, but probably the most significant change was the closing of the prison in 2001. Before that, people had been sort of reluctant to say I live in Lorton because they thought it had a stigma as the prison. I guess you would have to say the prison closing was sort of a double-edged sword. It took some of the economy base away, but it also added housing. And on the property, there was also space available to build a new high school, a new middle school. All communities change over time, but I think Lorton's sense of community and its center on its educational and recreational assets keep the community grounded and pretty much together. Lorton has progressed to a really great place to live. We heard from Larry Auerbach in Woodland, Normanstone, and Irma Clifton in Lorton. If you think your neighborhood should be part of Door to Door, send an email to metro at wamu.org. And to see a map of all the doors we've knocked on so far, visit our website, metroconnection.org. After the break, diplomacy for the green thumb crowd. He, I mean, literally frantically begins to send uh, seeds of possibly good crops over to America from England. It's coming your way on Metro Connection here on WAMU 1-800-Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and today we're talking diplomacy. So far in the show, we've covered international diplomacy, political diplomacy, and in just a few minutes, we'll engage in a bit of plant diplomacy. Yes, plant diplomacy. But first, we'll meet some folks who are immersed in what I guess you could call musical diplomacy. 
We're in Northwest Washington at the Embassy of Hungary, where a four-member band is rehearsing for an upcoming gig. The band is called The Diplomats, and initially it consisted solely of Hungarian embassy staffers. But that's the nature of diplomacy. It's about change. People come and go, and most of the band members left and are now back in Hungary. Except for this guy. I'm Akos Schweiss, and I'm a diplomat at the Hungarian embassy, dealing with political and economic issues. Vice started the diplomats last year when the longtime saxophonist came to the U.S. and realized so many of his colleagues dabbled in music too. We had a drum, we had a guitar player, we had a piano player, we had singers, but no bass players. So I decided to learn the bass. Nowadays, not all the diplomats work in the Hungarian embassy, but they do have diplomatic and/or Hungarian ties. First up on vocals, Brian Dawson. I'm executive chairman of the American Hungarian Federation. And on guitar, David Rakvia. Rakviash. Rakviash. My name is um, very complicated to pronounce. <laughs> Family name Rakviashvili. I'm diplomat at the Embassy of Georgia. And on drums, the diplomat's newest member, Ringo Ashkash. <laughs> Did we just make up this name? Uh, given name, given <laughs> diplomatic name. I, it's a rock name. R- Ringo Yanchi. Uh, try again. All right. <laughs> Ringo Yanchi. <laughs> Ringo Yanchi, as he requested, we call him, has only been with the diplomats a couple of weeks. The diplomats just lost a drummer, a guy at the Hungarian embassy, and with less than a month before their first gig outside Washington, a Hungarian festival in Sarasota, Florida, Vice says they scrambled to find a replacement. We had Craigslist. We had the same emails that we have sent when we found our singers, and that's how we found Rigo Yanchi. <laughs> <laughs> And it's Hungarian name. <laughs> okay, so Rigo Yanchi may not have actual Hungarian roots, but he says he loves rehearsing here at the embassy. Even like the ambassador came by. I mean, the ambassador is working, and we're bashing away playing rock and roll covers. Uh, we have a cool ambassador, Ambassador Dürch Sopari. He's going to be there in Sarasota with us. It's like a roadie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Road manager. Let's give him, we'll give him a little. The diplomats perform American and Hungarian songs, like this one by Bikini, a Hungarian band which formed in 1982 when the communist regime was suppressing freedom of speech. The Hungarian title is Ochayat Magad Melat, which is like, give me a place right next to you. So they were trying to write songs which had these double meanings. So this one is about love, one meaning, the other is the love for freedom. Singer Brian Dawson says he's spent years trying to reconnect with his Hungarian roots. And so this music means a lot to him. My mother was very affected by all that happened, the multiple wars, the revolution. Um, She was kicked out of school because of her family name. And so she largely wanted to forget when she came here and um, never really instilled anything in me. But my grandparents, whom I spent a lot of time with, from that, the love of my heritage really grew. And um, I really tried to do what I can to give back what this country gave to me and my family. 
That's why he joined up with the American-Hungarian Federation, an interest group representing the Hungarian-American community. It's also why he joined the diplomats. A lot of folks have seen movies about the importance of music to the folks stuck behind the Iron Curtain. David talks about how he was not allowed to listen to rock and roll, and so he would practice in secret. When I was in Hungary in 89, I was amazed by all the little clubs that were popping up, little jazz clubs and uh, salsa clubs, and young people coming in just hitting the piano. And so it's an amazing experience to sit here in freedom and play rock and roll. Not that the diplomats just play rock and roll. They do blues, too, including a tune inspired by Brian Dawson's father. It's called Baby Blues. Baby, baby, baby. The band hasn't recorded an album, though it hopes to eventually. It also hopes to expand its Washington venues beyond the embassy. So do you think maybe you'll, like, play gigs around town? We're looking for a manager, Rebecca. Yeah. <laughs> 10% in for you, just for you. Yeah? And we are, hmm. and we, are, we are looking for an audience, guys, out there. <laughs> yeah, there is that. <laughs> and part of the reason they want that audience so badly, says Akosh Weiss, is to lift that shroud of mystery that's surrounded diplomacy through the years. There is a part which has that secrecy and intimacy. But on the other hand, you have something else as well, which is the people-to-people diplomacy or public diplomacy to understand the civilizations of two countries, you know, to, to have a better understanding at the end of the day. And part of this effort is the rock and roll, what we are having here uh, with the diplomats. Because ideally, Vice says, this public diplomacy will bring the world together. So it can sing, as the old tune goes, in perfect harmony. The diplomats will be performing in Sarasota, Florida, at the 6th Annual Hungarian Festival this weekend. So we're going to go back in time now to one of the most important diplomatic periods in our nation's history. Arguably, that would be the founding of the United States of America. The revolutionary era was fertile ground for big ideas, which were passed back and forth between the founders of our country and other big thinkers overseas. And uh, these men also exchanged something else. Seeds. That's right. Seeds. Environment reporter Sabri Benashour wanted to learn more about this early plant diplomacy. So he called up historian Andrea Wolfe, author of the book Founding Gardeners, at her home in London. Of all the lenses we can use to look back on our colonial and revolutionary history, why this lens of the gardener? What does it bring us to look back at the founding fathers as gardeners and farmers? They called themselves foremost farmers and gardeners. They didn't see themselves just as politicians. Their their most important kind of profession was being a farmer. And I think when you actually read their letters, you'll see that in almost every single letter they write, they will mention their soil, their trees, their plants. So it was incredibly important for them. It's just been a little bit written out of history because for a long time it didn't seem important because they are these haloed, 
revolutionaries, these kind of godlike figures, and for a long time, maybe looking at them as farmers who, for example, obsessed about manure, was just not very referential. Let's talk about uh, Benjamin Franklin. I mean, you draw an analogy between the independence of the colonies and the independence that comes with living on a farm. He made self-sufficiency of the colony a, a big priority of his. Can you give me some, tell me some stories about that? Well, so at that time, um, Benjamin Franklin is in London as the agent of the um, of the Pennsylvania Assembly, but he very quickly becomes a kind of spokesperson of all the colonies. And um, he says, if we just produce everything ourselves, then we don't need Britain. You know, we become self sufficient. So he he, I mean, literally frantically begins to send uh, seeds of possibly good crops over to America from England. He suggests that, you know, we can, in, in America, we can kind of brew our own tea. We don't need to have the tea from the East India Company. We can kind of make it from other things. So the, the self-sufficiency becomes incredibly important. And that's all based on agriculture in America, in the colonies. Yeah. What kinds of things did he send over? So, for example, he sends over rhubarb. Uh, he's the first to send that over. He sends over kohlrabi. He sends over Scottish kale. So he sends useful vegetables over. He sends over the um, tallow tree from China. So he's not just sending stuff he can, you know, which he gets in England. He actually gets it in England from other countries. Ben Franklin wasn't wasn't the only one to sort of have this idea of uh, the farmer as the driver of the new colonial economy. Yeah, so for example, look at Thomas Jefferson, for example. He um, he says that the introduction of a new um, useful vegetable, of a new species uh, to America is the greatest service you can do to your country. And when he judges at the end of his life, when he judges his services to his country, he writes a list because he's an obsessive list maker. He always writes lists. So he writes this list, which obviously includes writing the Declaration of Independence. But on the same list, he also includes that he introduced upland rice to the southern colonies, which he had smuggled under the threat of the um, death penalty from Italy while he was in Europe. Virginia, for example, was basically entirely clear-cut several times over, um, something that James Madison bemoaned. Were the founders environmentalists as we think of it? Well, um, I would argue that James Madison was. What he didn't do is he didn't suggest that man had to live in kind of, you know, misty-eyed harmony with with nature, as maybe the Romantics later did. But what he said is that nature was a very fragile ecological system that could be easily destroyed by mankind, which is what he had seen happening in Virginia through the felling of forests, but also through uh, tobacco cultivation. And then he he basically said something really extraordinary. He said that um, man had to return to nature what he took from nature, you know, this was a time when most people still believed that God had created plants and animals, nature, entirely for the use of mankind. So at that time, he's actually saying we cannot expect that nature can be made subservient to the use of man. And he said that man had to find a place in nature without destroying it. So to me, that very much sounds like, you know, what environmentalists are saying today. And I am in my book, I'm arguing that he's really, Madison's really the forgotten father of America's environmentalism. 
That was environment reporter Sabri Benashore speaking with Andrea Wolf, author of Founding Gardeners. You can find more information on Wolf's book and her speaking tour, which will bring her to D.C. later this month, on our website, metroconnection.org. Okay, so if you're an avid public radio listener, you've no doubt heard of StoryCorps. It's the oral history project that gives Americans the chance to record, share, and preserve the stories of their lives. Well, StoryCorps has set up one of their mobile booths right here in our region, in Arlington, Virginia. And over the next few weeks, we'll be airing some of the stories recorded at that booth. We begin with Tanya Rennie and her partner, Cindy Morgan Jaffe, who've been together for 14 years and are raising five kids. Cindy says her life dramatically changed when she left a heterosexual marriage. Her world was given another jolt when she and Tanya decided to have a baby and ended up with twins. Before meeting Tanya, I was married for 14 years uh, to the father of my three beautiful daughters. So... <laughs> Are you, do you think you're up to ask, answering the question of what it was like to come out for you? Um, when I moved into a homosexual relationship, there was a lot of fear and a lot of, of uncertainty and anxiety around what is, what is happening to me. And I remember I went into a um, store down in DuPont Circle called Lambda Rising, and there I found myself thinking that, all the alarms were going to go off and there were going to be arrows pointing at me. And I went over to a table and there was a book called uh, Married Women Who Fall in Love with Women. And it was like it was sizzling there and I wanted to pick it up, but I was terrified to bring it up to the cashier. And so I just checked out the pages and, and headed out of the store. And then we had seen each other at this mutual friend's house and that's when we started, you know, I don't know. Moving around each other to see dating, like, dating. I guess, yeah, dating. <laughs> Fourteen years ago, and when we got together, we bought a house together, and we decided to go ahead and try to have a have a child. And so, Tanya, you want to tell the story about how we found out that it was twins? Well, I um, so we did get pregnant very quickly, and I had my first sonogram. And I was only 31. We hadn't used any drugs at all. There were absolutely zero chance of twins. And I went to the maternity center in Bethesda, and we were going to have this, you know, birds tying ribbons in your hair, sort of home birthy experience, you know, all that stuff in a four-poster bed or whatever. And so on a Monday morning, you know, when you'd go to the sonogram, Cindy, who's seen three sonograms, I, who was just concerned about not peeing because they make you drink all this water was lying there and Paulette the sonographer first thing out of her mouth was well there's two in there Cindy cue the waterworks immediately starts crying and I look at Paulette and I said so how long have you been doing this and she says 15 years and I thought oh my god she can't possibly be wrong and I have to say that in the moment that she said it I was thrilled and then the next moment we were just petrified and, of course, I started crying immediately because it was astounding news and exciting and all of that, but also just one more big 
change, really. And it, I remember calling my mother, who had been a wonderful mom through all of this with a divorce, and then, oh, you're with a woman now. And there we were, adding twins to the uh, package, and what could what could be better? <laughs> and I would say that, that those incidences are fairly typical of our lives. I mean, we really do live a very conventional life, but we've been, you know, managing a blended family, and we've had a lot of challenges. That was Tanya Rennie and Cindy Morgan Jaffe speaking at the StoryCorps booth in Arlington, Virginia. This story was produced by Metro Connections' Rafaela Benin. To find out more about the StoryCorps mobile booth in Arlington, visit our website, metroconnection.org. Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Jonathan Wilson, Sabri Benashore, Kavitha Cardoza, and our brand new superstar reporter, Jacob Fenston. Jacob, welcome aboard. Our acting news director is Memo Lyons. Our managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Our intern is Rafaela Benin. Lauren Landau and Rafaela Benin produce Door to Door. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, and our door-to-door theme, No Girl, are from the album Title Tracks by John Davis and used with permission of the Ernest Jennings Record Company. You can see all the music we use on our website, metroconnection.org. Just click on a story, and you'll find information about its accompanying song. Also on metroconnection.org, you can find our Twitter and Facebook links. You can read free transcripts of stories. And if you missed part of today's show, you can hear the whole thing by clicking the This Week on Metro Connection link. To hear our most recent episodes, click the podcast link or find us on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll be testing out a little trial and error. We'll go inside a court case that's causing a big rift between local farmers and environmentalists. We'll meet a woman who's trying to teach middle schoolers how to try and try again in the kitchen. And we'll do some theatrical mold-breaking with the folks at D.C.'s Studio Theater. Sometimes you'll find a play that's unfinished or that feels particularly experimental or non-commercial, but you feel passionate about producing it. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.